everyone. Welcome back to Capitalize Your Fridays. I'm Taylor McGowan, Senior Wealth Design Specialist at Altius Financial, and I'm joined by Mike Williams, founder of Altius Financial. Mike, I can't believe it's been almost six months since we started this podcast. I'm having fun with it. How about you? Are you? Are you having fun with it? <laughs> it's been an adventure. Taylor's right. We're six months into this podcast adventure, and I think it's been fun. I'm learning a lot. I'm, I'm definitely enjoying it. And hopefully we're getting better at it. Now we started for a couple of reasons. First, to provide a little education, hopefully to make it fun, talk about financial and related topics and giving our listeners a different perspective. Taylor and I, as I've said before, are from a little bit different generations and obviously different genders. And we might have a different perspective or two on the various topics that we talk about. So hopefully that makes it a little bit fun. But one, one of the things we wanted to do was make sure that it was a, kind of a milestone checker. We want to make sure that people are capitalizing on their Fridays by acknowledging the progress they've made during the week toward their goals and go into the weekend with a fresh perspective, kind of capitalizing on the opportunity either to make sure they have a fun and productive weekend, fun and or productive weekend, whether you're taking some time for leisure, rest and relaxation with the family or buckling down and doing something really productive, either for work or around the house or whatever your goals are. So we, we always want to remind you about our weekly challenge. And Taylor will do that maybe toward the end of our show today. But yeah, this is kind of a milestone checker and we want to make sure that you are capitalizing on your Friday. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting. In the last several months, we've really covered a wide range of topics. We've kind of covered everything from newer type investment vehicles like SPACs, NFTs, stocks. We've talked about joint budgeting, individual budgeting, estate planning, planning for travel. Throughout this whole process, we've really kind of tried to dive into different topics. And our whole purpose here has been to make this a good resource for our listeners. And so we've really appreciated any feedback that we've gotten from our listeners. And this show, we're actually taking some advice of one of our clients and listeners who has said, hey, why don't you talk about conspiracy theories? And I think that should be kind of a fun topic to I don't know, to mix things up. I'm excited about it. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Are you ready, Mike? You it's ready probably, for this is probably a good time to give our regular disclaimer, <laughs> maybe even add to it, because neither one of us are an expert on all of these potential conspiracies or conspiracy theories in general. So take this for a grain of salt, you know, take this for a little bit of a uh, disclaimer. Obviously, we're going to try to connect the topic as much as we can to the world of finance, investing, goal achievement. You know, our client who suggested this list reads a lot and pays attention to the news like a lot of our clients do. And they want to know, you know, what's going on in the news and then how's it going to affect their, their portfolio? How's it going to affect their security and so forth? So we're going to try to make sure we connect that some, but you know, all investments involve some risks and you have to understand those risks before you invest in past performance does not indicate future performance. There's no, no clear way to say, here's exactly what someone should do with their portfolio or with their financial situation. Obviously we have, expertise in this area. But if we mention any specific securities, industries, or strategies throughout this podcast, those are for only illustration purposes and should not be construed as any recommendations for anyone in, in person. If anything we say sparks your interest, or if you're needing to review your situation or get a second opinion on what you're doing, or just want to learn more about how we do things at Altius, give us a call, reach out to us. Taylor's Email address is taylor at altiusfinancial.com. That's A L 
A-L-T-I-U-S financial.com, Altius Financial, one word, or myself, Michael at altiusfinancial.com. Or you can, of course, check out our website at www.altiusfinancial.com. Okay, well, let's jump in. So I heard you say that our our client who kind of sparked this idea is really well-read and well-versed in the news, but what do you think really sparked this? Or I don't know, what, what do you think this whole topic is going to do to relate to people's financial well-being? Well, you do you know, think, I think what we say is going to change anything? Or <laughs> That's a good question. Um, hopefully it at least gives perspective. You know, there's a lot of concrete issues that he brought up and that we, you and I have brainstormed a little bit as far as the kinds of conspiracy theories out there. And hopefully it just gives people a perspective. I mean, there, there are actual conspiracies in the world. I think most of the time they're, you know, they're not, you know, it's, it's pretty hard for someone to pull off a conspiracy, but I think the biggest issue is that if you are paying, you know, investors pay attention to the news. Um, and, and actually almost, almost anyone today cannot not pay attention to the news. Even if someone's on social media or, I mean, I think of my girls and sometimes I go, well, what are their news sources? Like try to get them to read the Wall Street Journal or different good, what I consider to be good solid sources of news. But everyone is bombarded with information today, right? And it may yeah. be, it may be uh, little clips or, or, or memes or something that make fun of the news or make fun of what's going on, but everyone has some kind of connection to what's going on in the world. And so obviously our clients or you know, people who are interested in investing pay attention to see what is that news going to do their, to their portfolio. And, and it's interesting how the news cycles change quickly, but it's about both the cycle and the different sources that you know, someone has. Everyone has access to more and more news and information than they ever had before. But it doesn't mean there's necessarily more trustworthy sources. And it's a little flattering for this client or, and frankly, many of our clients ask me opinions. And I think they ask you opinions as well about yeah. you know, things that we may or may not be uh, knowledgeable on, but we are considered a trusted source. And so hopefully we add perspective to one degree or another. Yeah. Well, so really quick, you use the term news cycles that I don't think I'd heard that term before. So what does that mean? Is that like a, a shift in where we get our news from? Is that no, that's interesting. the news you is haven't true, heard the news is um, false? <laughs> so story, you know, uh, it's interesting because I, for a number of years, would go down to nine news. I was on their money line, money line nine uh, lineup of financial advisors who they'd interview or ask for opinions on for what's going on in the news. And a news cycle just means, okay, What's hot today? I mean, the, the whole COVID pandemic thing has been a longer news cycle. What's happening to any one celebrity from day to day might be a shorter news cycle. But when I was going down there, it's amazing how quickly the, if something happened that day, that meant the news cycle changed, or they certainly didn't want to know what my long-term opinion on the markets were or the economy was for the next 10 years. You know, they were more interested in the flash. Today, it's called you know, the clickbait, the how do we get someone's attention right now and does this story have legs? Have you heard that term? Does the story have legs? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, so that just means like, okay, this is something we can, I mean, maybe cynically is the way I'd put it. You know, this isn't, <laughs> that's not quite the right way to put it. But, you know, if something, how long can we milk this story for? How long, will, how long can we keep people paid attention to our medium? Whether it's, you know, Channel 9 being the, the TV, if it's a radio station or if it's a website or, or something you pay attention to, how long can we keep you glued to that media source 
so they can continue to advertise to you. I mean, okay. we, have, we have to be honest that most, virtually every source of news that one has is trying to make money at it. And the only way they do that typically, you know, this is the model from the past and, and you know, it's changing and, and it's, it's really interesting to see how people get news today. But for most of my lifetime, the model was, you know, you got a source of news that you either paid a subscription for like a newspaper or something like that, or you, you paid attention to, and in exchange you were listening or, you know, they were trying to get you to listen to their advertising. So they were selling advertising, not news. I mean, and that's yeah. most of what I would say is news. That doesn't mean there isn't journalism because there are journalists out there who, you know, are paid through advertising, but they're still professional journalists. But those lines yeah. have been blurred now with the kind of thing, sort of a flattening, you know, there's lots of people out there who can do podcasts now like us, right? And this is, <laughs> that's maybe a source of information for our listeners. How reliable it is? Well, it depends on the topic and the day and so forth. But yeah. The, so, so you would say that back in the day, you were paying directly for the news. So your news was likely to be better researched no, 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 and I wouldn't prepared. Say that no, because no? you weren't paying for it directly. Most of the time you were paying through an advertising model. You thought you were getting your news for free, but you know, anyone who's been around the block a few times, the more experienced people out there, which is most adults realize, okay, here's the trade-off. I yeah. watch this TV show and then I watch the news later on. And in between they're advertising to me and that's how I'm paying for my news and for my entertainment. So most of the time it wasn't necessarily directly, uh, although you're right in, in long form, longer form than say radio or TV journalism, you'd subscribe. Yeah, I was thinking like newspapers, like back yeah. in the day you paid a penny for a newspaper, whereas now it's, that's a long day. time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you would pay. And, and there are places you can, pay, and, and you and I both pay for Altius pays for a number of news sources because we're wanting to, you know, get past the advertising angle. We're saying, let's, Let's just pay for hopefully a good source of information. And we're in effect like a funnel or a screening or a conduit for many of our clients. They, that's what they expect us to do. You know, they want us to be knowledgeable about a number of different things. So they hopefully, they realize that we read a lot and are distilling that information down into hopefully some wisdom with regard to the advice that we give. And so they don't have to, but the news cycle is about, you know, how long does a, a story stick with people? And Americans are notoriously and maybe it's a cultural thing, you know, kind of short-sighted about, you know, well, okay, that story is old news and now let's move on to the new thing. Now, yeah. is that because uh, of our short attention spans or because of the way the media has monetized the process of gathering and distributing news? It's some of both, I think. It's partly cultural. I think the way we receive information in general has become kind of faster with the growth and expansion of technology. Right. And that's good and bad, right? You I mean, used you, to you go them. look for a word on, like, I would say, oh, I don't know what that means. My mom would say, go look it up in a dictionary. Now it's like, oh, pick up my phone. And within five minutes or less, I mean, within like five seconds, I can Google, what does yeah. that word mean? Oh, what is a, like, what's a similar word? And oh, absolutely. do I that, like this word? That's a, a whole different topic. I was reading a book recently that was kind of reminding me of this. And, you know, to me, I'm a huge fan of technology and Google. I love, you know, being able to find information quickly. It's it, to me, it's just a, it's an incredible time to be alive because, you know, you have access to all this, all this information, all this knowledge, and hopefully all this wisdom somewhere out there that you can actually get to fairly quickly, but it does have a trade-off. The, the book I was reading was talking about even the invention of the newspaper 
was in a sense negative because people didn't remember as well. And so think about it now. I mean, think about it when you didn't have things written down. I mean, prehistoric times where you had cavemen walking around, but they did have history, right? Yeah. His story. <laughs> they listened to his story and they remembered it and they passed it on to someone else. So they had better memories because they didn't have you know a book or something. They can go back and go, let me look it up again. Or they certainly didn't have Google to say, no, I don't remember. I don't need to remember that. I'll just look it up later. You know, I can always look that up. And we have that mindset of, you know, how much do I need to really retain? Well, I don't need to remember those things. I, it's, you know, I can pull out my phone and find it out. So it's, a, it's an interesting trade-off there. And yeah. to me, that means that people need to be better with filtering. And, and that's, you know, that's a whole different uh, topic on education and so forth, how people can filter with their ideas, uh, you know, what, what's a good source and what's not. You know, hopefully we're a good yeah. source. Um, but again, we're kind of delaying things. Maybe we should get on to the... Yeah, I was going to say, well, while we're talking about filtering, let's let's start filtering our discussion a little. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how to introduce this one. It has nothing to do with finance. Well, I guess it, it definitely could. No, it, it could if, it, if, if there were, you know, if it were... <laughs> and it might, you know. I mean, uh, you yeah. and I were talking about it. Um, I don't know. It seems like you hadn't been aware of it, but there is more talk about these aliens, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, so what you told me that you've read about is that apparently there's research that there have been like alien UFO type sightings around all of our nuclear defense bases. That well, that correct? was one of, that was one of the rumors that the client wanted us to address, and and I was indicating to you that there has been because I think your reaction was, yeah, what a bunch of you know. I'm not going to worry about that too much, you know. UFOs <laughs> and aliens are not on my radar right now, really, to be too concerned about, but there have been many more stories that have quote unquote credibility because they're coming from the Pentagon and from our military. The military is coming out saying, well, there is these unexplained things that are happening. Our pilots are seeing these things and have been for years. And they're releasing some video of, of what they've seen, you know, these unidentified flying objects, or they have a new acronym for it. I forget what it is, but it's like that basically, you know, something we can't quite explain that's happening in the sky, some kind of UFO phenomenon. So that is being reported on right now. There's more and more people who are going, wow, we, we now have uh, the, our government, is, uh, you know, they're acknowledging that the, the, there's aliens out there and there's UFOs. Uh, you know, my take on that, and, and, and we're not going to spend a time on it. You know, I, I'm not worried about aliens taking over the world at this point. I don't think there's a lot of good evidence, even though the military is showing some footage of different things I've looked at people who are giving the other side of the story saying, you know, look, we've got incredible technology to look out into the universe and, you know, photograph things. And so far the photographs and the video that they're showing of these things is not very conclusive with regard to it being uh, some alien spaceship or anything. And, you know, whether they're controlling the nuclear plants or the nuclear defense weapons, I think that's just, I think that is, I think this is all conspiracy theory that can be dismissed. So far, I'm, I am paying attention to the story because obviously if the, if the Pentagon is releasing information about things they can't identify, then I think it's worth paying attention to, but I don't think clients should be too worried about it right now. <laughs> so I, I'm pretty you much, don't I'm think pretty there's much, an immediate alien takeover, but something we should keep on our radar since our government is releasing that information. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And, and, you know, further than that, I mean, just if you ask my opinion, which you haven't, you know, and I've, I'm interested in yours, I mean, this is the kind of stuff you usually have a 
the conversation over a glass of wine or beer whenever <laughs> you're looking at the sky. I think it's in one sense really arrogant and silly for us to think in this vast, you know, universe that we're the only life form. Yeah. I, I think that's just not realistic because there's just so many combinations of things that could be out there. But to think that we actually have any real evidence of that and of some other life form visiting us, I, I don't think that's, I think that's all uh, mostly fun speculation at this point, but there's no real evidence for it. Yeah. So I, and- I can, I can hold both thoughts in my mind that, yeah, it's probable that there's somebody out there, but I don't believe we've been visited from anybody or that, uh, or that there's any evidence that it happened. But again, I'm open to whatever the Pentagon might show us. Yeah. Well, and on a similar page, I've seen stuff where people are posting photos and I know photos can be edited. So take that even with a grain of salt, but I've seen those photos where it's, oh, someone from the twenties has like a hand cell phone or something. And so then there's on a similar ish note, there's the debate of, okay, well, what if it's more time travelers versus a different species of alien or something? Maybe these UFOs could be time travelers or. Yeah. And again, I'm open to it, but I'm skeptical. (laughs) Yeah. I'm definitely that kind of person who says, you know, give me some, give me some evidence. There's all kinds of things that people purport to be evidence that I don't think really is. And that's where you have to have a questioning, filtering, you know, sort of scientific mind, reason-based to ask questions about is, does this actually count as evidence for a conclusion? So. Okay, well, so speaking of takeovers, maybe aliens aren't the only thing taking over. Apparently, there's a lot of people out there that are obviously politically incorrect and thinking that there might be some grand conspiracy where Jews are trying to take over the world. Have have you heard anything about that? You know, I have heard that kind of thing uh, all of my life, and I think it's absolutely insane. But there are people out there who believe that. I think that it's obviously anti-Semitic and it's horribly unfounded. It it, it is interesting. There is some history of coincidentally Jewish people being more successful in certain fields like finance, like banking, like the arts, like medicine. There is evidence that Jews are more disproportionately represented in some of those fields. And so the question is, well, why is that? Well, First of all, as you know, I'm, I'm, I believe in individualism. So it's individual Jews who are achieving in those fields. And there, I mean, there's, there's a whole history of uh, persecution in terms of the Jews, what they could or couldn't actually do as a profession. And one of the interesting things historically is that they weren't allowed into certain fields. And so they, they actually, before you even had banking and finance as a field, you know, this is long time ago, before you even had money lending, so to speak, as a field, Jewish people weren't allowed in certain parts of the world and certain cultures to, to take on, you know, say, for, for example, blacksmithing or carpentry or something like that. Some of the trades were off limits to them. So they actually sort of went into these fields by necessity, such as finance, and they got good at it. That's, again, a collectivist type of characterization. It's individuals who make a difference. But I think it's it is interesting to hear these kinds of conspiracy theories about Jews taking over the world or, or being, you know, involved in the financial world, like there's some kind of conspiracy. And I think that's just absolute, you know, racist, anti-Semitic bunk. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There was a show that was basically the exact opposite. And it was kind of like Jewish people taking back everything post 
Holocaust days. And so they were what like, do you mean by taking back everything. Well, so they were getting back at all the people who were German soldiers that worked at the imprisonment camps. They were getting back at those people. They were searching for the gold. Well, there still are Nazi hunters. There's still, I mean, that's not a conspiracy. There are still are organizations who are looking for Nazis. Obviously, a lot of the the Nazis are, you know, if they're still alive, they're very old, but there are still people who are trying to hunt down and find the major participants in the Third Reich, um, which I'm all for. Hunt them down and let's do justice to them. There are certainly many people who are Germans and and Jewish people, German Jews as well, uh, you know, people who were stolen from during the war. And, you know, if they were, then uh, there are people who are trying to locate that property and get it back to the rightful owners. Yeah. So kind of on to our next topic, we're going to kind of tie in all like the health related. Not all of them. A client (laughs) mentioned a couple of them and we have a couple more that we thought we'd throw in, but there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's no way for us to do all the different conspiracy theories out there, but we're going to touch on a few that this client mentioned. One of them is about these vaccines, the COVID vaccines. You know, there are people out there who have claimed that, you know, it's, it's a conspiracy to control us. You know, there's even people out there who believe that, you know, Bill Gates, because he's been involved in health research, vaccine research, his philanthropic activity has been heavily involved in that. And he was very much on the forefront of warning people about a pandemic, but there are people who are saying it's Bill Gates trying to control us. In fact, if you take the vaccine, there's, they're going to inject you know, this microscopic type chip into you so we can control you. Uh, You know, I think that's just all silly. I mean, uh, viruses are a real thing. The COVID virus is a real thing. I think we're on the, on the upside, or I should say the downside of the bad and the upside of the good, you know, with the vaccinations and, um, and some herd immunity, at least from I could, from what I read and can tell, uh, that's all good. But the, the idea that they're trying to control us through vaccines, I think is absolutely silly. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are definitely people who have reasoning on both sides of the spectrum to say, Hey, I want to get the vaccine or I don't want to get the vaccine, but anyone who's saying, I don't want to get it because they're going to control my mind. That's, I think that's just fresh out of a movie. (laughs) Yeah. Science fiction movie. Now, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's plausibility to that. I mean, first of all, technologically, could that happen? It's wonderful. The science is actually getting to the point to do really good things for people with microscopic little machines inside your veins and so forth. And that's a good thing. This goes back to that whole point of about a conspiracy being hard to pull off. I mean, most conspiracy theories in my mind are just not, not realistic because I mean, it's hard to get people of any size, any group to keep a secret. It's pretty hard to do. <laughs> yeah. So there's going to be someone in that you know group of conspiratorial people who will leak, and, and that usually happens. Now that doesn't mean there isn't such a thing as conspiracy. I mean, there certainly are. There have been conspiracies throughout throughout world history that actually were you know giant secrets that some group was trying to perpetrate on some other group or some other world. But most of the time, it doesn't work. And I think that there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, the vaccines are being used that way. I think the politicians have used vaccines in a sense that way. Um, just like they've used masks that way. I mean, masks, it's been controversial about how much benefit they really are, especially the masks that most people wear. I mean, you know, I've heard it, the analogy has been like, you know, the virus is like a, a handful of sand. And if you, th- if you throw a handful of sand at a, uh, 
chain link fence, you know, it's not going to, you're going to stop some of it, but you're, most of it's going to get through. And I think that that's probably accurate with regard to mass, but you know, there's arguments on both sides, but are politicians using wear a mask or get a vaccine to make people more uh, submissive? I think there's something to that. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's been kind of interesting seeing the social platform around, oh, like, if you're not going to get it, then what does that mean? And if you're going to get it, what does that mean? And I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting because I, I feel like growing up, the whole anti-vaxxer thing was like, there weren't very many people that didn't believe in vaccines as far as I could tell at least. And now it seems to be much more of a split thing where it's like this COVID vaccine, we're either, either you're all for it and you're going to get it, or you're thinking, Hey, it, hopefully it helps or you're no, I, I don't want that. That's bad. That's horrible no, for think, you. I Why would I get tiny that? Minority of people who are, conspiracy theorists with regard to vaccines and are anti-vaxxers in that way. I think there's, I think it's rational for someone to say, you know, they rush this thing through. And I, I, I'm actually an advocate for that rush. <laughs> I, I think the FDA takes way too long to approve things. And I think people should be able to try lots of kinds of treatments. You know, that's my view in terms of a free market, but, but so people are saying, wait, this went too quickly and I'm a healthy person anyway, so I don't need to take the vaccine. And I'm going to live my life with that risk. And I think they have a perfect right to do that. I mean, one of the questions that our client asked was, you know, whether it's against the con- constitutional rights to be required to get a vaccine or, or wear a mask. And it, it is my view that that is a violation of people's rights to be forced to do that. If, if our government was forcing you to just, you know, forcing you to take the vaccine or forcing you to wear a mask, I think that is a violation of your rights. Now, again, that people get confused by that. You know, if I have a business or if you know, I'm Walmart or I'm the local restaurant, I should be able to say whatever I want as far as my requirements for you to come in. No shirt, no shoes, no service, no mask, no service. I should be able to do that. If I don't want you to come into my restaurant because you haven't been vaccinated, then that's my, that's my prerogative in my view. But that, that isn't the role of the government unless there's a clear violation of rights. And we've talked about this a little bit before. You know, the, the COVID virus, as bad as it has been, is not a clear, you know, just people walking around, especially outside, is not a clear violation of someone else's rights. Yeah. Well, so on a similar note, there's rumors of people saying, oh, well, it's it's just the flu, though, or it's it can't live in a climate over 65 degrees, and it's it's the flu. It's not a big deal. What are your, I mean, I think we both agree it's not just the flu. No, it's, it's, I mean, in one sense, it's like, you could say it's just a cold because the, my understanding, again, this is very much layman's understanding. I've read a lot about this, but I have no expertise in terms of epidemiology, but this virus is a variant of the flu and a variant of the cold, but it is different. It has, uh, I think though there was some alarmism, it, it definitely has more transmissibility, a higher infection rate than the flu or the cold, or maybe not, maybe not the cold, but it definitely has a higher infection rate than the flu. That makes it in some ways a bigger threat. Now, it's interesting that it has, you know, there are certain populations that are more subject to it, you know, older people and people who have other health uh, compromises. But I think it's really silly to say it's just the flu. It's different than the flu, you know, maybe from the same source as far as the kind of virus. It's a, um, but I think it is definitely different than the flu and definitely different than a cold. And there are lots of things that should have been done differently uh, with regard to preventing its spread. 
It, it's interesting. Just recently in the news, and again, this is part of a news cycle. Uh, I heard Fauci, uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, indicate that he's now open to the idea that maybe it wasn't a natural virus. It did come from the lab in in uh, China. And you know, there are quote conspiracy theorists who've been saying that. In fact, I think Trump said that. There have been people who have been saying that for since the the virus or the pandemic began. Now Fauci is changing his mind, saying maybe that's what what happened. Uh, again, I don't know. I think it is something we should know. I mean, I hope our our government really does investigate it in a fair and honest way, and we we end up knowing. And I think we will. Yeah. Well, okay. So back onto the vaccine concept of things. There's the whole conspiracy of okay, well if I get the vaccine, is that going to cause autism for me or my child? I think that's been something that's kind of long been discussed of, okay, well, if, if my, if I vaccinate my children, are they going to have autism? Have you heard of any medical links between that or any accuracy there? Cause I always kind of thought, ah, that's way out there. That didn't seem, I feel like we have a lot more people holding up their kids in the streets and saying, ah, my kid got this and it's your fault. And you know? yeah, I, I think there's no real good evidence for that. I think that most of what I've read uh, in terms of the science is that there's no real connection between vaccines and autism, but it is interesting. There is a correlation. Yeah, you know, there is, we, it's, it's not been that long in, in terms of human history that we've been using vaccines. It's a fairly recent thing to do mass vaccinations. And I say, thank God. I mean, that's a wonderful thing that we have now is <laughs> You know, medical technology to keep us safer against some of nature's actual real threats like a virus and some of them are pretty nasty. So I, I'm all in favor of vaccinations, but there is a correlation between seemingly higher vaccinations that are going on and seemingly more kids getting some of these afflictions like autism. But correlation does not equal causation. That's a huge mistake that people make when they're in their thinking or in their filtering. And yeah. I think most scientists, the vast majority of scientists would say there's no, no causation right now between vaccines and, and such afflictions or neurodevelopmental disorders. Yeah. Um, so the last thing that we had on our list for health-related conspiracies was fluoride. So I know they do put fluoride into our water and apparently there are thoughts that, okay, it's just it's put, added into our water. I mean, what we're told is, oh, this is healthy for you. It's good. It's helping your nutrients. But the conspiracy about it is, oh, it's making us more docile and controllable. It can cause arthritis, cancer, all kinds of other sicknesses. Do yeah, you I think, think it's mostly, a healthy or not? Conspiracy theory. I don't, I don't think that's accurate <laughs> at all. I think, I think fluoride yeah. has been proven to be a very helpful thing in terms of preventing tooth decay. People have much better dental health today, obviously, because we have understood dentistry and orthodontics more, but I'm as open to anyone to evidence of, you know, our government being the bad guys and trying to control us. But I think there's zero evidence of fluoride really, really being a bad thing. Obviously, you know, one of the things that people don't realize with any chemical substance is that the amount of dosage is crucial. You know, and, and I think that they, they being the, you know, uh, water sanitation people and scientists in that field have, have done a lot of studies in terms of making sure that the level of fluoride that we take in our water is, and, and in our toothpaste is, is safe for people. It's like these environmentalists who, who want to have, you know, zero parts per billion of 
whatever metal in our rivers. Well, some of it's naturally occurring and some of it maybe comes from, you know, bad actor polluters uh, in the industry, but it all boils down to, you know, how much, how much of it is bad, how much of it is, or how much of it is natural. So the dosage and the amount that a person has ingested makes a big difference. They talk about viral load going back to the, the COVID vaccine or going back to the COVID virus and how, how much of a threat it is to someone else. They talk about that term viral load. Like lots of us have the virus in us already and we've gotten it, but we're not symptomatic because we don't have a high enough viral load to really cause us any problems. It's all about, you know, how much of it do you have and how much of it are you exposed to? You know, how much yeah. radiation could have, you know, going back to the nuclear plants, how much radiation does a person get from the sun or being in Colorado because we're at higher altitude versus radioactive uh, device or something? You got to remember it's about dosage. So yeah. I'm, I'm not concerned about fluoride. Okay. So the next kind of topic that we've we've read about with conspiracies is like the political and election type stuff there's kind of a conspiracy going around that the the whole election was stolen and there seems to be some systematic issues that have arisen and issues with mail-in voting and whether everything was really done constitutionally or whether whether that any of that was really investigated what are your thoughts there what do you think taylor that is a good question. I, I mean, I think there's going to be some margin for error in any kind of calculation. So I would say maybe some of the votes might be miscounted or, but I would assume that they always were since the beginning of time, if that's the case. Yeah. So I'd say we're, we're likely close enough. If it was like a almost tied situation, then maybe I would, I don't know, I guess, we did have the issue of, okay, well, it was like a state or two. And if this state changes, then, then that changes the whole election. Yeah. I think, uh, it's, it's a interesting <laughs> situation because, um, most Americans don't understand our process for electing the president or other officials. And nor in my view, do they understand the role of government in the first place? I don't think the election was stolen at all. I don't think it was a conspiracy. You know, the, the issue of being stolen is sort of a straw man in my mind. There, there definitely were systemic issues, partly because of COVID. I mean, there were, there were people who were concerned that, okay, we want to keep our social distance, so let's make it easier for voters to vote by mail. And that was sort of rushed through. But that wasn't a conspiracy. That was, you know, done in the open day of light. You know, it wasn't like all parties weren't aware of that happening. But whenever you have that kind of voting by mail, it's my belief that you have more opportunity for fraud. And I think there probably was some. Now, was, like you said, I think most of the, I think all the courts who heard the cases said, look, there's not enough evidence here for you to even present to us. And they rejected those arguments out of hand. They knew, or they believed, and, and I think they had proof that it wouldn't have changed the outcome. Certainly there's a lot of Republicans who don't believe that. And it's interesting because, you know, it's part of the cultural divide we have right now, people thinking their gang didn't win or their, the other gang cheated. I don't think it was a stolen election or cheating uh, per se. I think they're, you know, there are, like you said, there probably is every year some attempt at, at voter fraud, but was it out of the ordinary? I, I do think that 
especially the state of Pennsylvania, that I thought should have been heard by the Supreme Court myself because it didn't follow the Constitution. So if you have a state Supreme Court that actually makes a decision that's contrary to the U.S. Constitution, you know, that's, that's a problem. And I think that's what happened in Pennsylvania. But again, to answer the question, was that a conspiracy? No, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's a, a massive, you know, it's a unique case because of the pandemic where lots of people saw the opportunity to say, let's get more vote by mail. I personally don't think it should be necessarily lots easier for people to vote. I, you know, I'm, I'm in a minority. I believe that democracy, as I understand it, is mob rule. You know, it's like counting noses and the biggest gang wins or, or even like might makes right. And I, I don't think that's a good thing at all. I, I think that the U.S. found, we could go off on a whole nother podcast sometime about, you know, what the founders tried to create. And it was definitely not a democracy. And, and people who today are brought up in schools to think that democracy itself is a positive thing, I think are woefully uninformed about the founding. But that's a different topic. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because you say you want to make it a harder barrier for entry for elections. And I, I feel like I'm the millennial perspective saying, well, why aren't we just doing this online? Like, why can't I just do this through my phone? This, <laughs> I can submit my taxes online. Why can't I submit everything else online? And I know we have a client who does some cybersecurity stuff and he was kind of saying that, no, that, that would be a fiasco. But then I kind of wonder why did they let us do that with our taxes? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. <laughs> I'd be inclined to say, you know, you, you can't do, well, taxes are even a, an entirely different podcast topic. <laughs> um, you know, how, how, how do you, how do you properly fund a government and a free society um, without the use of coercion or force is maybe another topic or another title for, <laughs> for a podcast. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I, I didn't say that I want to make it harder. I just don't think, I think all these efforts to make it easier, you know, they're, they're, and this would be interesting from a perspective, because you're saying you're, you know, given the millennial or younger person's perspective, do you think that uh, younger people, uh, younger than 18, should have the, the privilege or right to vote? Because that's, there's a lot of fight. And I think this is mainly coming from the, the pro democracy people, or maybe even the party, the Dem Democrats, they're moving towards saying we should have younger and younger people vote. And I, I think that's really a bad idea. I actually think that you should have some idea of what's going on in the world and you should have some education. <clears throat> and most people, uh, I, in my view, now again, this sounds like an old guy, but I think most people who are in their teens or even in their early twenties are just not very well informed. And, and so they're not, they're not voting in a meaningful way. Now, again, the opposite side would say, you're just wanting to prevent them from canceling your old guy vote. You know? <laughs> Um, but I, mean, I, I, I do believe there, that citizenship is something that should mean something. Um, yeah. you, you know, I'm a, a very much in favor of immigration. Uh, people, some people have called me open borders. That, that's not an accurate description, but, but I do think it's really a good thing to have healthy flow of capital goods and labor, which is, you know, the labor's part is immigration. That's a healthy society, but I don't think people who are immigrating here, which i want to welcome them should automatically have the right to vote. They should, you know, voting should be about citizenship and citizenship should mean something. And just because you're born here and turn 16 or 18 or whatever age doesn't really make you quote a citizen in my mind. But 
Well, so then you're saying rather than it be an age thing, like you have to everyone test in to be a citizen versus just the people who don't aren't born here. Is that so? I do play with that in my mind. I chew on that a lot, actually. Um, whenever we you know have elections, whenever it's that season of the or time of the year or year of the calendar that we're voting, I think about that. I I know that that's dangerous because you know there are people you know historically poll tests or poll taxes or there's lots of things that have been done historically to to try to disenfranchise people of color or or women for example uh, and that's absolutely wrong every individual should be treated as an individual in this country and have individual rights the question is you know should we don't let three-year-olds vote and there's no one out there right now at least arguing that three-year-olds should be able to vote well why they're an individual i think yeah. They haven't achieved maturity. And so I, I, you know, I'm the kind of person who thinks that, you know, that range of age of uh, 18 or so where someone can begin to drink alcohol without their parents' permission, or they can drive a vehicle, or they can go to war, those are all sort of wrapped up into now they be, they've become an, an adult, they've become an agent, they've become their own decision maker, and they, sh- and they have the responsibility of making their way in the world. They shouldn't, should no longer be a dependent on their parents or society. And that means that they are now uh, a citizen. And, and, but that also means they should have you know, some idea of what is going on in the world and, and what the, the issues are and why, why we have the structure we do. Well, and I, I think that's reasonable to say people need to be informed before they can make a vote. But then how they do need- you test that? Yeah. Well, right. and how do you test that without being racist or sexist or... Exactly ageist or yeah. yeah I don't know I think all the age stuff is kind of weird because it's like 16 you can drive but you can't drink 18 you can fight for our country kill yourself still can't drink yeah. no <laughs> I think those are like those are all silly like- and there should be there should be more uniformity in terms of that and and yeah you know, there's certainly it's a range it's a rational range I mean this is one of those things where there's a rare 14 year old that I would say yeah they probably should be able to drive a car. I was driving at 14 or they should be able to, to drink alcohol. I was drinking at 14 and, and not just, you know, behind my parents back, but you know, in yeah. the right context. And I think lots of people do drink before the legal age. And so there's a range there, but I think the law can't say, well, we're going to be loosey goosey about this range. And so instead they, they decide based on pressure groups, you know, you know, if, if there's some group who's saying, you know, we don't want little, we don't want kids drinking too early because they get in car wrecks, which is true then you know, we have to make it later or any number of reasons why a group might try to say this particular age is better for this particular issue rather than looking holistically about, okay, is what's human nature like? You know, what is a reasonable age of maturity? And okay, they're now a citizen and they get the rights of adulthood and citizenship. Yeah, that, that's, that kind of goes back to partly the school system. Do, do schools actually teach about you know, there's no such thing as civics anymore. They call it social studies, and that's purposeful. It's a concerted. Now, you might say, Mike, your conspiracist theory. <laughs> I think there has been a, a philosophical <clears throat> movement in this country for over 100 years to change our educational system. And it is against my values and ideals, and I think against the original American founding of, of individual freedom and rights. But again, you know, we're touching on stuff that we could go down a rabbit hole on. Yeah, I was going to say, this is all kind of political, but 
not quite the same list of conspiracies we were talking about, but. Yeah, so um, to wrap that one up, I mean, I think, you know, the, uh, our client also asked about most of the U.S. votes were being counted in other countries and that Trump was sending, you know, special units of the military to go, you know, lock them up or try to find <laughs> out. I, I think that's all just, you know, that is conspiracy theory rumor. There's no evidence, in fact, of that happening. What about the U.S. is just a colony of England and all of our income tax goes to England? I feel like we would know if we were a colony still, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's just, again, just craziness. very crazy theory. <laughs> a lot of our income tax goes to many countries in the, around the world. I mean, we don't support England so much, uh, although we have foreign aid to so many countries, and I'm, I'm against that. But to say that uh, we're a colony of England, uh, you know, the, the person doesn't know anything about history or current facts. Okay. So what is this pizza gate? I think you told me about that. Uh, that's another silly conspiracy. You know, the, you've <laughs> maybe heard the, ter the term, the QAnon. Um, there's a far right group of people who have accused, say mostly democratic politicians, but all politicians in Washington of being part of a, a conspiracy to enslave children into sex rings and things like that. And the focus of it was this pizza shop. There's no evidence of that. I mean, there is obviously evidence of this guy Epstein who I think there may be a conspiracy there in that, that whole issue of, you know, did he actually kill himself in prison? But, the, and there were certainly prominent people who were associated with him and, and that remains to be further investigated and, and people, can make their own judgment about what what the facts come out. That guy, seemingly from everything I've read, was a you know was a a pimp of some a high class pimp you know or many well to do people. Yeah. Does that mean it's necessarily tied to any political party or specific politicians? I don't think so. There's even you know there's photographs of that guy Epstein with lots of prominent people and. You know, they may be involved, maybe were involved in his sex trade or they weren't. They maybe were just at a party that he happened to be at and got photographed with him. I don't think there's evidence of this grand conspiracy of politicians as much as I denigrate politicians. I don't think there's a grand conspiracy of them trying to have this sex slave trade. I, I do think people are unaware of that being an issue. That is something that I've become more aware of over the last five years. There, there still is. I mean, I, I have said in the context of the slavery issue, you know, the, the, the race issues that are coming up and this, this 1619 project, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with that and I'm not going to go into that, but, but you know, in the context of slavery, slavery does exist still in the world. And a manifestation of it is oftentimes children or young girls are captured and uh, used in a, in a sex slave trade. And that's yeah. really, really tragic. I don't think the Democratic Party's the head of that at all. Yeah, I would like to believe hopefully they're too busy running our government to, well, to also run a... Well, you'd like to believe in what's true. I mean, that that, yeah. you know, that, that goes the opposite way. And and what do, you, what do you mean by running our government? I mean, that's a whole nother thing is <laughs> you might say, I want them to be running the government. And I might say, I want them to stay home and stop running the government. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The government is us, the people, meaning we're, we, we are self-governed. I know that's a delusional idea, but that was the original idea is that, you know, we're free people and we've delegated a certain very limited powers to politicians and we are self-governing. And that's my view. And I think that should be the view, although that isn't 
that isn't what we have right now. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole list on our, we have a whole list of conspiracies on, you know, 9-11. That's a true conspiracy, right? There, you know, Bin Laden was, you know, put together a secret ring of his, what I call Islamo-fascists, and had a concerted effort over decades to try to destroy America as much as he could. And that was a true conspiracy. There are people who say that's, you know, they'll take the opposite view and say, you know, that was even the, the U.S. government. I, I think there's no evidence of that. I think that people show video of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Centers and say, you know, try to say this couldn't have happened this way. Yeah. I think most people who have expertise, whether they're architects and engineers or aviation experts, they have all debunked that conspiracy. Yeah, I, I remember hearing some conspiracies about 9-11 being an inside job and how they were saying that those steel bars wouldn't have broken under the jet fuel or I don't have enough science and I'm not a rocket scientist, so I right, don't know. Right. What neither kind one of us neither technology. one of us have the, the expertise to be able to determine that. And that that brings me to a point is that, you know, I think most of our listeners, you know, we're we're laymen in everything but our, our fairly specialized work. Um, and so we have to trust experts. Um, and that's one of the beautiful things about a free society and the division of labor is that we don't have to be experts on everything, but we do have to have filters. So we have to say, okay, do I trust that expert? I got two experts here. One is saying, you know, the, the, uh, the world trade centers would have never gone down with that kind of, you know, with that kind of uh, impact and infrastructure. And then you have somebody else who says, no, this is how it happened. Here's the heat was at this level. And here were the pressure points in the building. So we have to make our own decision ultimately of, okay, this one makes the most sense. And like I said, in that case, I don't think there's any good evidence at all to say that 9-11 was an inside job. I think it was a conspiracy by Osama bin Laden. And, and, and the thing is, there's a trail of evidence for, like I said, decades of that of him personally being involved in that conspiracy and, and certainly of other Middle Eastern states funding that kind of thing, whether it was Saudi Arabia or, or Iran. So there's clear evidence to me that that was, you know, and, and that's an ongoing thing is that, that we have that kind of foreign policy enemy who still uh, wants to destroy this country. Yeah, no, I agree. So let's get to financial related conspiracies. So maybe we're there not experts other, at the others. There is one other that's on the list. We'll skip the the deep state and the Sandy Hook and all that kind of stuff for right now. But there is another one um, that I think is you know worth talking about. People hear about the global reset. I don't know if you've heard of that. Oh, I've heard of it, but I, I don't really know much about it. I feel like I've heard that phrase in passing, but I don't know really what that means. So I wanted to touch on that one briefly. I don't think it's a conspiracy. If you actually, you Google that term, you can find websites where there's explicit strategies on actually having that. And they are explicit about saying, you know, this pandemic is a, a good opportunity to have a global reset. You know, there's these terms globalist and globalism that are thrown around. Most people on the right side of the political persuasion don't like that. They bristle at the idea of globalism. They want to be a little, they usually tend to be more of an isolationist view you know, America first type of stuff. More national. Yeah, more nationalism. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not me. I, I am, I don't call myself a globalist because that in that sense, it's like this global reset, which is, you know, there should be more uh, harmonization between uh, sovereign nations and more even 
uh, power given to uh, the UN and worldwide organizations like that, which I think is a, that's an absolute disaster because <laughs> UN, the UN has no idea what, what the right form of government is uh, and is against my ideals uh, of freedom and, and human opportunity. Um, but I am a global, I am for globalism in the, in the, in the sense of free trade and, and uh, pluralism and people cooperating with each other and being able to cross borders. And, and you know, that's, that's one of the most fantastic things in our lifetimes that's happened, you know, is being able to travel free, more freely, being able to trade more freely with, with other people. I mean, we don't, we don't always realize it because we're sitting here saying, well, I just go to my local store and buy, but you know, then, then it's vilified and said, well, you're buying from China or you're buying products from, from somewhere other than the U S and, and that's really a good thing because it, it actually allows for, um, you know, the division of labor again to take hold and for um, lots of econ free, free economic principles to take hold in terms of giving us better quality and lower prices that does displace some people in jobs. But my main point here is that uh, there is not a conspiracy, but there is an effort and it, it comes out of this, this sort of, uh, it is an elite conference uh, at Davos. That's the term, that's a, the place for it where, where they, they meet uh, and lots of politicians, wealthy business people, um, uh, journalists, people who are uh, what you call uh, elitists or people who've you know made it in the world. Um, they get together and talk about what you know what's what are the best kind of policies. And most of those people at that conference advocate for more globalist government. And I think that's a really bad thing, even though it's not. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's out in the open. I just want to make sure I made a quick comment on that. Yeah, so basically it's every all these um, countries trying to kind of unite and make trade easier. Well, they but they want the, the government the, connected. They actually to. don't want to make trade easier. Um, it would be great if they did. If they wanted to bring down trade barriers, you know, if they wanted to say to Trump, uh, we don't care about your <clears throat> tariffs. <laughs> we're going to take we're going to get rid of our own tariffs. Tariffs hurt the country that they're initiated in. Um, so they're not wrong. It would be fantastic if uh, the global reset was to say, let's go toward more free trade. It's the exact opposite. Um, a lot of it's driven by environmentalism. Um, they're, they're trying to say, well, we have this you know, climate change catastrophe. And so we have to cooperate more as a, as a globe. Again, I think there's very, very, um, I'm very skeptical about their motives and their uh, quote science. Um, and their understanding of how dependent we are on um, traditional energy for the wonderful lifestyle we lead in that, and not only that we lead, but lots of people all over the world want to lead. I mean, you know, if you, again, this is kind of a rabbit hole, but you know, the, the, the people at Davos and the global reset people who are trying to control free trade and control certain substances like like uh, fossil fuels and um, and other other energy sources, um, they're condemning much of the world to not actually achieve uh, more independence and more um, material progress, and and they're, they're condemning people to stay poor, basically. Um, so it, it would be great if they we had more of a UN-like organization that was for free trade, but the UN is the exact opposite. You know, I could go off on the UN a bunch. And, and again, I don't consider myself a, a conspiracy theorist at all when I look at the what they stand for 
I'm in a minority. Most Americans are kind of like, uh, they have this vague feeling of, yeah, there should be, you know, some kind of cooperation between nations. But, you know, when you, when you elevate countries like Iran or Venezuela or North Korea to the same negotiating level and the same moral level as the U.S. or Western Europe, that's a tragedy. And you're giving them way too much credit and way too much power. They haven't earned it. And they, they're, they're bad people. They're bad to their own people. And we shouldn't adopt their views. Yeah. That Enough said sense. on that. But there are a I lot have... of financial conspiracies that we wanted to touch on. Yeah, there's tons yeah. of them. I'll just start at the top of the list. So the Rockefellers to the Rothschilds. What, what did you mean when you wrote that? This goes back to the conspiracy of elite bankers or wealthy entrepreneurs who are trying to control the world. People have originally were confused, you know, Actually, it's even before this time period. But since since capitalism took off uh, in the late 1800s in the U.S. and in Europe, there were lots of people who were saying, "Okay, all this wealth this wealth concentration is bad." You know, these are powerful people, and they have too much influence. They're using their money to control and try to take over the world, take over assets and resources. And so Rockefeller, who was in my mind a great hero, who who made it, you know, he really did exploit the the discovery and refinery refining capability of petroleum just as we were needing it for energy both you know transportation and uh, manufacturing and, and factories cheap reliable energy is one of the the great benefits of humanity because it's basically having machines do work that humans might take you know centuries to do the same amount of work that a machine could do in in just an hour or two Having that kind of control of energy has made it so that we have, we've gotten rich. You know, we've gotten rich in terms of our lifestyle and our ability to lead longer, healthier, happier, more joyous lives. So that's why Rockefeller, in my view, is, is a hero and he accumulated a lot of wealth. And the Rothschilds in Europe were in the banking, on the banking side. So there's all kinds of rich people. And I wrote down the example of George Soros or the Koch brothers who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum, but are both, you know, today's examples of right-wing or left-wing conspiracy theorists accused of saying these guys are trying to take over the world. George Soros is trying to take over the world, or the Koch brothers are trying to take over the world. Yeah, they, they certainly, both of those certainly advocate for their own political views, and I might agree with one side or the other, but they're both, they're not trying to take over the world in any sense of just saying they've got, they've accumulated capital and they want to express their own values and free speech sometimes through that capital it can be dangerous if, if you don't if it's not disclosed if politicians are getting money hush money from or money under the table from a wealthy business people then that's not a good thing but it's i think paranoid to say these wealthy people and like i said it goes back throughout history are trying to control the world. They are trying to control their own asset base their own wealth that they've accumulated and then also giving and contributing to causes they care about. Yeah. Well, and then kind of on a similar note, then we listed out like the Freemasons, the Illuminati. And then I know there's also like all of the fraternal organizations as well. And so I, I think it's probably a similar case there where, okay, maybe in this situation, people are actually gathering together, but are they, how much control do they really have? I don't think that one group of people is ruling the whole world. And I think that oftentimes that's what you hear when you attach 
like fraternal organization names to things. Like if you're saying, oh, like Beyonce is a part of the Illuminati, you're saying, okay, Beyonce is part of this and some president from some country and now they're all gonna rule the world and own all the money. And I mean, from what I've read, I don't think she's actually part of the Illuminati, but I think even if people are joining together, they're not necessarily trying to rule the world. They're maybe trying to say, hey, we all agree it's good to have good company kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the fabulous things about the American founding is the freedom to associate, to say, you know, here's the people I like, they share my values and, and we're going to form a club. We're going to say, this is us. And we're going to, we get to associate with each other and we can say no to other people. I mean, that, that has been a source of discrimination and racism where people said, you know, we're going to have this white only club. But more often than not, especially under the American system, it was, it was a system where people could express their own values and be judged based on those associations, which, you know, that's also part of the freedom. You know, if, 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 if you're associated with people who are, you know, have a certain value set and then other people who are, who don't have that value set going to say, you know, point to you and see, look at that group over there, you know, look at that look at those racists or look at those, uh, or look at those achievers, look at that, you know, that, uh, that business group who get together and they seem to be so productive. That's a good thing to be able to judge people based on their values. That's not a bad thing. And, and so the freedom of association is a crucial part of a free society. We're going against that now. In some ways we're, we're expanding that, but in some ways when we use the law, which is force to say you can or can't be part of these clubs or groups, but that's different than accumulated wealth, which is, you know, political power is the f- use of force, you know, using force to make people do things, you know, following the law, paying your taxes or whatever it is. That's using literally physical force, the threat of physical force to make you do something against your own judgment. Otherwise, you just do it without any force. Economic power, which is what we're talking about with the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the Cokes and so forth. That's earned power. They've traded freely with someone and accumulated great wealth by satisfying lots of people with their products and services. So those are two different wild, you know, very different sources of power. They do get mixed up when business people who've accumulated wealth and assets try to use that money to enact law that's against freedom or against individual rights or using, you know, using the force of law to try to control other people. And that's something we should be on the lookout for, whether it's, you know, uh, wealthy business people or, you know, the accumulation of lots of, lots of funds from, from not so wealthy people. I mean, you know, whenever someone is using wealth to try to use the force of law, that's a, that's a dangerous thing, but that's partly because people don't understand the, the whole purpose of the law. I ask all the time, you know, what do you think the role of government is? And very few people have a concise answer. They don't know what that means. You know, well, you know, it's to make people get along better. It's to make lives better. What the hell does that mean? (laughs) You know, um, it should be, it's much more, at least in the original founding, it's much narrower than that. It's basically to protect individual rights, including property rights. That's the point of the law. That's the point of government. And then otherwise let people do what they want with their lives because they're free. Yeah, that brings me to the one of the big conspiracy theories that our client asked us about, this whole idea of uh, fractional reserve banking. And I don't want to go too deep into this. It's a pretty simple concept in one sense. But when you put your money in a bank, you're probably, you're, when you're depositing your money in the bank, 
the bank knows that you're not going to likely take it out tomorrow. Now you're putting it in there for safekeeping and for a rainy day or trying to accumulate savings for something else. Um, and you might take it all out the next day, but they know on average, not all the depositors will necessarily say, I want my money today. So the money that you've put in the bank and the money that the, all the other depositors have accumulated in the bank, that's all sitting there in the bank vaults, right? Theoretically, it's sitting there in the bank vaults, but no, the bank says, okay, we got this money sitting here. We can lend it, it to other people. <laughs> yeah. What's that? I said, let's invest it. Yeah. Let's put it to work. Let's, let's, and that's, you know, most of our capital system is based on, you know, putting capital to work, not just having assets or money, dollar, dollar bills sitting in some bank vault. So the idea of fractional reserve banking is just that it's, it's, we're going to keep a, the bank saying, we're going to keep a fraction of our, all of our deposits on reserve for those people who want or need to get their deposits back out. But a lot of it, we're going to actually lend to other, other people for what their needs are, whether it's to buy a car or a house or to, to invest in a business. Yeah. And that's a great way for a, an economy to expand and grow because that means there's accumulated capital sitting in the bank that can be put to a productive use based on the, the banker's best judgment, right? That's his business model. He says, you know, I'm going to collect a bunch of deposits and I, I'll pro my promise is to keep your deposit safe and to hopefully get a return on that for the, both the bank and you as the depositor. Now, because we have the Federal Reserve today saying, you know, interest rates are so low, they're punishing depositors. They're punishing by default. They're punishing anybody who's a safe investor who wants to keep some of their money just safe in the bank and get a little bit of a return on it. They're not getting any return. That's an unfortunate side effect of having, again, the government, the Federal Reserve involved in a private business called banking. But there are a lot of people on the right who actually denigrate fractional reserve banking, say it's a bad thing and say it's a conspiracy, that it's, again, a way to just have the rich get richer or the bankers take over the world. And they don't understand that whole issue of time, the time demand that people have on deposits. And now, obviously, if a bank's telling you, look, we have hundred percent of your deposits here and you know, they don't, they're lying about it. That's fraud. Um, one thing that most people aren't aware of is before we had a federal reserve who's, you know, involved in and supposedly guaranteeing through FDIC and those kinds of things, the average bank had much more in reserves, had much more uh, safety than is the case today because people don't actually think in terms of you know, what kind of risk am I taking with this bank? So uh, banking was a safe, in my view, a much safer system, even though there were runs on banks and there were booms and busts, as most economies experience some, you had a better, safer banking system when you didn't have the government saying, we're going to be the backstop, we're going to guarantee everything. Because bankers themselves and depositors themselves and investors don't have to really think as much about risk. They, they're like, well, you know, every, the government's going to be behind all this. So I don't, I can just come up with harebrained ideas or I, as a banker, I can loan to anybody and, you know. Well, and, one, and on that same note, it's, it's helpful to remind people that something my stepdad always instilled in me is nothing is free. <laughs> so I think a lot of people go into a bank and say, oh, I'm setting up a checking account and a savings account. And this is free. I'm not paying for it. And if you're saying it's free, I'm not paying for it. I'm expecting them to hold everything there and have it ready for me at all times. Um, that's just unrealistic because yeah. it's not going to be free. Someone has to pay the banker. Someone has to 
pay this, the person at the front, the person who does the technology, the person who keeps the safe running. So ultimately there has to be some kind of margin somewhere. And if you're not the one paying for it, then your dollars likely are. That's exactly right. It's kind of, kind of going back to that issue we said about news sources you know, you, you can watch the news for free, but well, what they expect is that, you know, you're going to be have to be interrupted with commercials and that's how they, you know, they're selling commercials and advertising to help pay for their whole infrastructure. Well, the banking system is, you know, how, here's how we have, you know, the physical bank and the vault and the employees and all that kind of stuff to be able to keep your money safe and to give you hopefully a return on your, on your savings. Now, what's interesting is technology disrupting that, you know, okay, you don't need, we don't need a physical vault or a physical bank. You know, there's a lots of more online kind of banking systems. And the older person is, the more likely you're going to say, well, you know, I want, I want a concrete building and a safe and, and employees. I don't want to, I don't want to just think of banking as an online experience. And the younger person is, and you tell me if you agree with this, but you know, the younger person is they've, you know, grown up with digital transactions all their life and, and the computers are, you know, much more natural to them. So they're like, no, I, I, I trust this bank and I know I'm just making deposits electronically and taking withdrawals. And I don't, I don't care where they're, you know, their buildings and concrete are. I, I care about whether I get my money out and get a return on it. Yeah, exactly. No, that's, that's totally how I feel. It's, I'm okay with it being digital because I've, I've now spent half of my life with my banking being digital. Mm-hmm. Whereas I know my grandma physically will go to the bank and then she writes out her check slips and she's keeping track of a ledger on paper and a little booklet. And I think it's just kind of whatever you're comfortable with. Whatever you're comfortable with, and, and it boils down to, and this is you know maybe a bigger sort of theme that we could begin to wrap up as far as our, our conversation about conspiracies. I mean, a free society requires trust. It, 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 it does mean that you have a certain level of trust in the businesses that you deal with. Now, not, not like naive, naive trust, but you say, okay, this person has a business and they're not in it for free, like you said. I mean, they may advertise about all the benefits that they're providing me, but they also need a win-win themselves. They need to make money and they need, you know, we use this phrase sometimes, no margin, no mission. You know, they, if they can't have a profit margin, they can't really serve their customers very well in, in the benevolent sense that, that you think of in terms of a mission. That's just a reality. And so banking finance is the same thing. I just thought of one that I think would be interesting to hear your opinion on. Apparently all of the, the U.S. gold is stored in Fort Knox and there's a debate of is, it, is the gold really there or not? And I guess I kind of wonder, does it matter? Because we don't base our dollar off of U.S. gold anyways. So I would say I wouldn't expect it to be there and what difference would it make to me if it was there? Well, that's a good question. So you know, the originally paper money was supposed to be backed by gold or some other real asset. And that goes into the history of money. We've talked about that on prior podcasts a little bit, you know, the gold standard and, and things like that. I don't know that the, the U S government's gold supply has all, I mean, I know Fort Knox was the big depository and I think it probably still is. It does matter if, if, if you're saying, you know, the, a government is doing transactions, which they do. Ultimately, major international transactions are ultimately done through gold shipments because most countries, at least historically, realize that their fiat paper monies are not value without the promise of 
backing it up through military action or, or through actually some other intrinsic value like gold. So it does matter if the, the U.S. government is just kind of blown all of the gold that we as a society or as a country own. So like all thing. of our U.S. debt is in gold then? Well, it isn't it's, anymore. I mean, that's where that's where this idea of borrowing without any kind of backing and you know, the U.S. government has the, had, has had the luxury of being the reserve currency, meaning the currency that people point to and say, okay, I mean, the reserve used to be, or what was backing things was gold. And it, w- it had an intrinsic value. It had its own value outside of just being able to trade with people. Uh, people value gold and silver for itself. And, and in fact, both of the metals have industrial uses and they have jewelry, aesthetic power, uh, you know, that's just a fact of reality. People for thousands of years have, have been attracted to those two metals, partly because they're rare, especially in the case of gold, but that's what makes them uniquely suited to be a monetary base. There's other, other properties they have such as homogenous, you know, they can, they can be melted down where you, you know, if you were using, you know, chickens to trade, well, chickens <laughs> don't, you know, they, they grow and they die and they're not all the same. You know, there's good chickens and, you know, unhealthy chickens. Gold yeah. is gold. Gold is all the same and you can divide it up and you can melt it down into different units. That's another property that gold has uh, and silver precious metals have like that that make them natural, you know, objectively natural as a monetary unit throughout history. Now, again, we've, we've gotten to this more abstract level where we have these paper dollars and now even just computer blips on a screen to do our accounting, but they still should be, it shouldn't be such that you can just transfer money or create money out of thin air. If you can, that means you can steal from people. That's basically called counterfeiting, right? Um, In any any other setting besides a sovereign government doing it, we would call that counterfeiting. If you were printing money in your backyard, or if you were able to transfer money and create money, create value on your computer so you could buy more stuff at Macy's or Nordstrom's, yeah, that's not fair to Nordstrom's or your fellow citizens because you're basically creating value, which has no value. You're stealing. So back to the Fort Knox thing. I mean, it's an interesting because, you know, the world adopted after World War II a dollar reserve currency. People knew that the, the U.S. government was the strongest coming out of the war and that it would likely keep its promises, you know, pay its debts. And that's why U.S. government debt, treasury bonds, treasury bills, have been sort of de facto like a gold standard for most of the world. Most people think, okay, if I buy a treasury bond from the U.S. Treasury, I'm going to get my money back. They're going to pay me back. But we've created so many of those, and we've borrowed so much that rational people are beginning to say, well, would we ever be able to pay it all back? You know, will the U.S. government default? And that's a real question. And that's partly why I think that the, the innovations of cryptocurrencies came about is people are like, well, I don't want to store my hard-earned value in these fiat currencies like the US dollar or, or some other sovereign countries' paper dollars or paper money. And that will be interesting to watch, you know, how that develops. Again, I'm more on the side of having some intrinsic value, you know, a real concrete reality-based value to have as a store of my wealth or store of my productive energy, but the markets will over time adapt and try to figure out whether, you know, gold or a cryptocurrency or something we haven't even thought of will be better than uh, fiat currencies by governments who are, who are not very responsible with the wealth that they, they have, or they have control over. 
I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> well, you didn't say if you think the gold is there. I think you said that, was, that you think it needs to be there. I think the gold that was there is there that, you know, it's not like it disappeared, but it doesn't represent enough value. So it should I mean, in one sense that what that means is it, gold as measured in dollar terms should go up. The price of gold in dollars should go up because there haven't been, and it's almost, it, you know, it's basically impossible. There is the theory of, you know, can we mine these asteroids that have gold or other minerals on them? And that, you know, amazingly enough, partly again, due to technology and capitalism and a free market over time is a, is a reality. You know, we actually can, I mean, there, you know, I watched the Martian the other day and you know, that's when I watched that movie a few years ago, you know, that was like, this is great science fiction. And you've heard about colonizing Mars, but just in the last few years, they're more serious about saying, you know, can we actually get a person on Mars? So mining asteroids is a, a likely doable thing at some point technologically, and then maybe we have more gold. And so if there's some great way in the galaxy of creating more gold, then it probably, or not creating, but discovering more gold or even creating more gold, you know, alchemy wise, then it maybe doesn't become the same monetary value. You know, if everyone can get all the gold they want, just like they could breathing air, then it becomes less valuable in terms of, trade or storing value but my point is that the, i think the gold is still there in fort knox most of it or whatever but it, it it hasn't kept pace the amount of gold in fort knox has not kept pace with the amount of dollars that are out there floating around and so yeah. those dollars are certainly worth less and you and i've shown clients you know charts that show you know from the beginning of the 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 country you know if you had a dollar then it's worth like maybe three two or three cents today which is you know basically that inflating, eroding the value, the purchasing power, is, which is what's important with money. So dollars have gone down in value. Gold goes up in terms of dollars. And that's what's happened is the gold's still there, but it's it should be worth a lot more. Than it was back then. Yeah. And that you are seeing that. That's partly why, you know, you know back in the founding the country, you know, a dollar was actually a potentially a piece of um, metal. It was a, a coin. Now we have, you know, $1,800, $1,900 per ounce of gold. Yeah. We could go on forever about all the different conspiracy theories that are out there that we maybe have some opinions or, or very little expertise on. I mean, I want to say to this client, I appreciate you putting together the list. Hopefully this is helpful in terms of your response to some of the wacky things that are out there. My takeaways are, you know, first of all, generally conspiracies are very hard to pull off. They're, most of them are, you know, ways to scare people. But that doesn't mean there aren't real world conspiracies. We've talked about a, a, a few of them there, but again, they're, they're most of the time, you know, very difficult to, to actually have happen. And, and they do require someone to think about an evil bunch of people who are doing this. And I tend to think that most people aren't evil. Now that, that gets into a theological thing, but I think most people are good. Second takeaway is a person has got to have their own filter. Like we said, they've got to be able to check their own premises. You know, does this conspiracy theory that I'm hearing about make any sense at all? Do I have any reason to connect it to things I know are true? Focusing on, you know, reason versus just the emotion of the moment, because that's what it sometimes happens with, uh, you know, the news media counts on people being emotionally moved by things versus, you know, being slower and deliberate. A second thing is, and we talked about this a little bit, I think people need to have multiple sources of information. You can't just trust one 
one source, even if it, even if it's one you think is really, really trustable or you've counted on it for a long time, if they're saying something that just doesn't make any sense to you, you've got to do your own fact checking or sort of triangulate with another source. And I think it's crucial to seek out sources that you don't normally agree with, you know, read newspapers, watch TV stations that you, that give, you know, what you would consider to be the wrong view. I think that's a healthy thing. Testing your own sources against, you know, someone else, you know, having multiple sources. Yeah. And, and lastly, I guess this is repeating myself, but I, I think that the world itself and the people in it are mostly good. And that's why most conspiracy theories, I think, are both not really true and attribute evil to where it doesn't exist. I'm not saying people, there aren't some bad people, but I think to say that most people are bad and the world is horrible is uh, unhealthy and, and, and not really true. I mean, I do, I do believe that the world is moved by ideas and there are some bad ideas out there. And the only way to fight bad ideas is to have better ideas. The only way to fight, you know, bad speech is to have better free, more free speech. That's, that's my view. Yeah. What? I'll let you have the last comment. <laughs> well, so thank you everyone for listening to our podcast. Just a quick reminder. We are on week 22 of our 53 week finance challenge. I invite you guys to follow like friend, subscribe, tune into our Instagram, Facebook, obviously podcasts. And they're all saved as Altius Financial. So our 53-week challenge, this week we're inviting you to take a look at your net worth. So for those of you who might hear that word and go, wait, what is a net worth? Um, go check out our Instagram. We, I did a reel this week, so you can see my, my happy face just kind of enacting what, <laughs> what net worth is. And I, I hope you guys all check that out. It kind of lays out what that equation is so you can calculate it for yourselves. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot us a DM, a direct message, and we're happy to help you walk through um, what is your net worth? Is it directed higher in a certain sector or not? What's the best strategy for you? We're always here to be a resource. Once again, feel free to reach out to us at michael at altiusfinancial.com or taylor at altiusfinancial.com. Plenty of resources on www.altiusfinancial.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a happy Friday. Definitely capitalize on your Friday and your weekend. Have a great weekend, everybody. Talk to you soon.